and welcome back to Take One, the podcast that brings you just one redemptive page of Talmud every day. It's been a lot of a week trying to celebrate the holiday of Shavuot while keeping up with an ongoing war in Israel wasn't easy. So we wanted to end the week with a message of hope, with some sort of lesson on how a society that seems to so many to be really on the brink of something dark and terrible can find the strength and the courage to redeem itself. Whenever I seek such difficult answers, whenever I feel a bit short on hope, I turn to the memory of a man who is a teacher and an inspiration to myself and to so many of us, the great late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. We lost Rabbi Sachs last November, but thankfully his voice lives on on rabbisachs.org, where you can go and find much of his wisdom and his teachings preserved for posterity. Today's Daf of Talmud is all about the Sa'ir la'azazel, or the scapegoat, sacrifice on Yom Kippur to atone for our collective sins. It's a custom that always struck me as, well, strange, the sacrificing of one goat and the dispatching of another into the wilderness And Rabbi Sachs delivered one of the most profound and profoundly moving explanations of this tradition I've ever heard. And so, with permission from Rabbi Sachs' estate, here is one of his teachings about the scapegoat and Yom Kippur, but also about shame and guilt and the possibility of redemption. I hope you find as much meaning in it as I did, especially these days when we need all the comfort we could get. Shame, guilt, and the scapegoat. The strangest and most traumatic element of the service on Yom Kippur set out in Achraimot was the ritual of the Shnesirim, the two goats, one offered as a sacrifice, the other sent away in the desert, La Azazel, to Azazel. They were, the two goats, to all intents and purposes, indistinguishable. They were chosen to be as similar impossible as possible in size and appearance. They were brought before the Kohen Gadol, and lots were drawn, one bearing the words to the Lord, the other to Azazel. The one on which the lot to the Lord fell was offered as a sacrifice, and over the other one, the high priest confessed the sins of the nation, and it was then taken away into the desert hills outside Jerusalem, where it plunged to its death. Tradition tells us that a red thread would be attached to its horns half of which would be removed before the animal was sent away. If the right had been successful, the red would turn to white. Much is puzzling about this ritual. First, what's the meaning of to Azazel, to which the second goat was sent? It appears nowhere else in scripture. Three major theories emerged as to what it meant. According to uh, the sages and Rashi, it meant a steep, rocky or hard place. In other words, it was a description of its destination. According to the Torah, the goat was sent to a desert, desolate place, El Eretz Gezerah. And according to the sages, it was taken to a steep ravine where it fell to its death. That is the first explanation. Azazel is this steep, rocky place from which it fell. The second, suggested cryptically by Ibn Ezra and explicitly by Nachmanides, is that Azazel was the name of a spirit or demon, one of the fallen angels referred to in Genesis 6, similar to the goat spirit called Pan 
in Greek mythology or Faunus in Latin. This, of course, is a difficult idea, which is why Ibn Ezra only alluded to it, as he did in similar cases by way of a riddle, a puzzle, that only the wise would be able to decipher. What he writes is, I will reveal to you part of the secret by hint. When you reach 33, you will know it. Nachmanides reveals the secret. 33 verses later on, the Torah commands, they must no longer offer any of their sacrifices to the goat idols, Seirim, after whom they go astray. Azazel, on this reading, is the name of a demon or hostile force, sometimes called Satan, Satan, or Samael. Now, of course, the Israelites were categorically forbidden to worship such a force. Indeed, the belief that there are powers at work in the universe distinct from or even hostile to God is incompatible with monotheism. Nonetheless, some sages did believe that there were negative forces that were part of the heavenly retinue, like Satan or Samael, who brought accusations against humans or tempted them into sin. The goat sent into the wilderness to Azazel was a way of conciliating or propitiating such forces so that the prayers of Israel could rise to heaven without, as it were, any dissenting voices. This way of understanding the right is similar to the saying that the sages made that we blow the shofar in a double cycle on Rosh Hashanah la arveveta satan to confuse Satan. The third interpretation, and far the simplest, is that Azazel is a compound noun meaning the goat, the Az, that was sent away, Azal. This led to the addition of a new word to the English language. In 1530, William Tyndale produced the first English translation of the Hebrew Bible, an act which was, by the way, then illegal and for which he paid with his life. When Tyndale wanted to translate Azazel into English, he called it the escape goat, the goat that was sent away and released. In course of time, the first letter was dropped, and so the word scapegoat was born. The real question, though, is what was the ritual actually about? It was unique. Sin and guilt offerings are familiar features of the Torah and a normal part of the service of the temple. The service of Yom Kippur was different in one key respect. In every other case, the sin was confessed over the animal that was sacrificed. On Yom Kippur, however, the high priest confessed the sins of the people over the animal that was not sacrificed, the scapegoat that was sent away, carrying it on it, all their iniquities, according to the Torah. The simplest and most compelling answer was given by the Rambam in the Moreh Hanavuchim, the guide for the perplexed. He says this, There's no doubt that sins can't be carried like a burden and taken off the shoulders of one being to be laid on that of another being, the animal, but these ceremonies are of a symbolic character and serve to impress people with a certain idea and induce them to repent, as if to say we have freed ourselves of our previous deeds have cast them behind our backs and removed them from us as far as possible. In other words, expiation demands a ritual, some dramatic representation of the removal of sin and the wiping clean of the past. That's clear. Yet the Rambam doesn't explain why Yom Kippur demanded a rite not used on other days of the year when sin or guilt offerings were brought. Why 
was the first goat, the one on which the lot to the Lord fell and which was offered as a sin offering. Why wasn't that sufficient? The answer probably lies in the dual character of the day. The Torah states, this shall be an eternal law for you. On the tenth day of the seventh month, you must fast and not do any work. This is because on this day, you shall have all your sins atoned, so that you will be cleansed before God, you will be cleansed of all your sins. These are two quite different processes. One is kapara, atonement. That was the function of the sin offering. But second, there was tahara, purification, something normally done in a different context altogether, namely the removal of tumah, ritual defilement, which is something completely different from guilt. Defilement can arise from a number of different causes, such as contact with a dead body or skin disease or a nocturnal discharge. Atonement has to do with guilt. Purification has to do with contamination or pollution. These are usually two separate worlds. On Yom Kippur, they were brought together. And that is the real question. Why these two things on Yom Kippur? Well, the anthropologist Ruth Benedict made clear the distinction between shame cultures and guilt cultures. Shame is a social phenomenon. It's what we feel when our wrongdoing is exposed to other people. It may even be something we feel when we merely imagine other people knowing or seeing what we've done. Shame is the feeling of being found out. And our first instinct is to hide. That's what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden after they'd eaten the forbidden fruit. They were ashamed of their nakedness and they hid. Guilt, though, is a personal and private phenomenon. It has nothing to do with what others might say if they know what we have done and everything to do with what we say to ourselves. Guilt is the voice of conscience and it's inescapable. You may be able to avoid shame by hiding or by not being found out, but you cannot avoid guilt. Guilt is self-knowledge. There's also another difference which explains why Judaism is predominantly a guilt culture rather than a shame culture. Shame attaches to the person. Guilt attaches to the act. It's almost impossible to remove shame once you've been publicly disgraced. It's like an indelible stain on your skin. Shakespeare has Macbeth say after his crime, will these hands never be clean? In shame cultures, Wrongdoers either tend to go into exile where no one knows their past or to commit suicide, God forbid. Playwrights have them die. Guilt, though, makes a clear distinction between the act of the wrongdoing and the person of the wrongdoer. The act was wrong, but the agent remains in principle intact. That's why guilt can be removed, atoned for by confession, remorse and restitution. Hate not the sinner but the sin is the basic axiom of a guilt culture. Now, normally sin and guilt offerings, as their names imply, are about guilt. They atone. 
But Yom Kippur deals not only with our sins as individuals, it also confronts our sins as a community bound by moral mutual responsibility. It deals, in other words, with the social as well as the personal dimension of wrongdoing. So Yom Kippur is about shame as well as guilt. Hence, there has to be purification, the removal of the stain, as well as atonement. The psychology of shame is quite different to that of guilt. We can discharge guilt by achieving forgiveness, and forgiveness can only be granted by the object of our wrongdoing, which is why on Yom Kippur, what Yom Kippur only atones for sins against God. Even God cannot, logically cannot, forgive sins committed against our fellow humans until those fellow humans themselves have forgiven us. Shame can't be removed by forgiveness. The victim of our crime may forgive us, but we still feel defiled by the knowledge that our name has been disgraced, our reputation harmed, our standing damaged. We still feel the stigma, the dishonour, the degradation. That is why an immensely powerful and dramatic ceremony had to take place during which people could feel and symbolically see their sins carried away to the desert, to no man's land. In fact, a similar ceremony took place when a leper was cleansed. The priest took two birds, killed one, and released the other to fly away across the open fields. Again, the act was one of cleansing, not atoning. It had to do with shame, not guilt. Judaism is a religion of hope. And its great rituals of repentance and atonement are part of that hope. We are not condemned to live endlessly with the mistakes and errors of our past. That is the difference between a guilt culture and a shame culture. But Judaism also acknowledges the existence of shame, hence the elaborate ritual of the scapegoat that seemed to carry away the tum'ah, the defilement that is the mark of shame. And this could only be done on Yom Kippur because that was the one day of the year in which everyone shared at least vicariously in the process of confession, repentance, atonement and purification. When a whole society confesses its guilt, individuals can be redeemed from shame. This has been Take One a production of Tablet Studios. If you enjoy this show, and I hope you do, please go and rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. Each week, we'll be releasing new episodes Monday through Friday, covering the entire weekly portion of Dafyomi. I'm your host, Leah Liebowitz, and our producers are Josh Cross, Sarah Fredman-Ader, and Robert Scarmuccia. For more information, go to tabletmag.com slash takeone or email us at takeone at tabletmag.com. You could find us on Twitter at takeonedafyomi or join our Facebook group by searching for Take One Podcast. I hope we've made your day a little bit more Talmudic and we'll see you again soon. Mm-hmm.